The Daily Dose is produced by Authentic You in collaboration with North Coast HIV and related programs, also known as North Coast HARP. It's jointly funded by North Coast HARP and the New South Wales Ministry of Health. You're listening to The Daily Dose. The Daily Dose is a podcast about the life stories of people who inject drugs. We'll be discussing substance use, addiction, self-harm, trauma and other topics that may not be appropriate for certain listeners. We encourage all of you to be in a safe space when listening to this podcast. Welcome back to The Daily Dose. Over the last few episodes, we've been listening to the stories of people who inject drugs. We've heard from Megan, a 26-year-old who used primarily with a partner and is now on a treatment program. We met Marco, a 30-something out-of-work mechanic who, while still injecting drugs, has stabilised and is looking forward to achieving some life goals like getting a job again. And we also met Nikki, a woman who tragically lost her partner and the grief saw her return to injecting drugs after two decades of abstaining. Amazing stories, George. In a moment, we're going to hear from Luke. We've also been telling you about the work of the NSP, the Needle Syringe Program. They're basically how we found these stories. Well, we think we should tell you a little bit more about the harm reduction and drug strategy that informs the work of the NSP. And... Did you know, and this is really interesting, I had no idea till we did this, George, that it all goes back to the HIV pandemic. So Sashi and Darren from the NSP, tell us how it all fits together. Harm reduction is a really small portion of a three-pronged approach that makes up the Australian drug strategy. Um, So it's the uh, harm minimisation framework, and within that there are three different levels. So one is the demand reduction and what sits within that area of the um, Australian drug strategy are things like detoxes and counselling. And then you've got the supply reduction, which are things like your federal police trying to actually reduce um, the supply of drugs into Australia. And then you've got this small pocket of money that comes to um, harm reduction, which is basically recognising that people who use drugs, whether it's legal or illegal, um, sometimes it's such a varied reasons why people use drugs and it's not as simple as saying stop using. And so during the time when they are needing to use, for whatever reason, during the time when they're needing to use, we try and minimise the harms for them. So... One of the main reasons why this funding um, became available back in what the, the middle of mid eighties was um, during the HIV epidemic. So people who inject drugs were seen as a core um, population for the HIV um, epidemic pandemic. Sorry, and so funding was made available to actually try and curb HIV spread. Between people who inject drugs because they needed to share injecting equipment. So we provide new injecting equipment so that people didn't need to share. So we could stop the transmission at that 
um, injecting kind of area. And the core purpose of that was to then stop it because HIV, sorry, I'm just jumping. HIV is um, not just a bloodborne virus, but it's also sexually transmitted and it's a vertical transmission. So it was, it, this is one of the best things that we did. We introduced um, new injecting equipment really early on in the piece so that we can stop the spread at that first kind of level so that we then stopped the transmission from injecting drug users to their sexual partners and then from mother to child because that was what w was being seen in other parts of the world. And so Australia kind of had this bipartisan kind of approach to let's try and stop it as early as possible in what's called a core population that injecting drug users were so that we could prevent it becoming a an issue in the generalised population, which would make education and prevention a lot harder when it becomes a generalised pandemic. Um, harm reduction is very much embedded in the Australian drug strategy. It may not be something that's talked about. It may not be something that um, is lauded when we talk about what we do in the drug space, but there is bipartisan support because we've been funded very well um, over the last 35 years, like both, um, it doesn't matter what um, political party you're talking about, there's always been support and that's because the NSP service is, um, the, the foundation is a really rich evidence-based approach as a, as a public health strategy for HIV prevention. It's also incredibly cost-effective. Um, whereby it's, um, I've read a report somewhere that said for every dollar spent on a new needle and syringes saves $29 in medical costs that it prevents. So it's an incredibly, you know, cost-effective health. Evidence-based. Yeah. Wow, that's a really impressive health and cost benefit. I imagine there are people out there who think, why would we be giving free, clean injecting equipment to drug users? Aren't we encouraging it? No, it's a health strategy that realises that people are going to inject drugs, so why not reduce the harms? It's clear that the NSP and harm reduction practices have really improved overall community health by reducing and potentially eliminating blood-borne diseases. But let's get on with our daily dose stories. Let's meet Luke. Okay, I'm Indigenous. I'm 52 years old. I grew up in 70 in Queensland of all places in JB Alke Peterson country in what I'd call a conservative racist town. We lived on the fringe, lived in, in um, condemned houses and, you know, being Aboriginal in a, in a racist society is bad enough but then... Uh, I was also had an idea that I was gay as well. And as a child, I never really felt like I fitted in anywhere. And at night, you could look up at the stars and they were beautiful and magical. And I can always remember saying, looking at the stars and going, you left me on the wrong planet. And that was at, at 12, 13, I actually sort of felt I don't fit in anywhere. I've since then moved to, my family had to move to Brisbane for a sister who had a nervous breakdown and then from Brisbane when I grew, Brisbane wasn't for me as well and so I eventually went to Sydney 
whether I sort of came out and ex- with my um, sexuality and started living independently and that's where I found drugs as well, which was for me a self-medication that I really needed. And then years later, well, 2005 to be exact, I had a heart attack. Wow. And that was what me... And then I was basically told if I didn't give up smoking, I'd have my legs amputated in the not-too-distant future. But that one sentence, I gave up cigarettes, I gave up marijuana, I gave up alcohol, and I gave up a drugless regime that was as tall as I was and just basically started living clean and and sober and then realising why I went on drugs in the first place. Wow. So how old were you then, Luke? When I was that 44. Wow. And that's that's quite a big sort of patch between because when you – actually, when you were saying then about growing up in Bajolki Patterson, I grew up there too. Yeah. I come from Wondai. Where where you? Childers. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah, so yeah we're in the same zone. So yeah. I, I know I know what you're talking – it is it is a really isolating – kind of place to grow up if you have a sense of being different yeah. or other. But then for me, what was really different about being Aboriginal is one thing, but being gay is another. Yeah. And the the discrimination doesn't come from non-Indigenous people. It actually comes from your own mob, like yeah. family of origin. It's the first one to cast the stone, so to speak. Well, they did with me. And that's why I left them as well, you know. How did you first start using drugs? First started using drugs, look, I was convinced I was an insomnia growing up. I just couldn't sleep. And I and I think this is my anxiety rearing its ugly head or its head that I didn't know what it was. So... I was introduced to marijuana and for me it was it did something to me that was it was like sliding slowing down like it was just all of a sudden I sort of found myself through this yandi we called it yeah this herb that all of a sudden just became my best friend was that in your teens you that was about? in my teen and then I found alcohol you know, and with all the alcoholics in my family, it's I it was like a fish to water, so to speak. I really, and then I understood my uncles, and I related with people that I thought were ashamed me, and could understand them far more better. And then from that, I found when I got to Sydney, I found speed. And I now realise I love speed because it made everything go faster. <laughs> it made, and all, all of a sudden, you know, I was ahead of where I was before and I just wanted to just continually take this thing that, in other words, it was, it was a form of an out-of-body experience without actually living your life. And yeah. Did that help your anxiety too, the speed? Like did that kind of push you through any of those feelings of, you know, that you'd had before? Well, I didn't actually have anxiety while I was I had. Someone said to me once, and it was a drag queen, it said, oh, 
it's I'm numb. I don't feel anything, and that's the way I like it. <laughs> and I just really related to her totally, you know. And you know, and I just continually took drugs to not feel anything. So, how when you say you took it, I mean, how how many times a week or a day? What was your, what was your regime at sort of at Look, your peak back then? I was a real Cleopatra, queen of denial, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I was a, a recreational user, as I called myself back in the day. But unfortunately, my recreational was from Monday through till Sunday, you know, and I might have had one day off in just to come down. And I was sometimes I'd even shoot up to go to work. And I mean, not a really nice look. But I thought I was absolutely fabulous, you know, floating through Sydney, you know. So what sort of work, so you're saying you're shooting up to go to work. What sort of work were you doing through this period? Were you something really sort of stable and, and one job or were you moving through a range of jobs at that point? No, I actually worked in health <laughs> of all things and I even worked in should I say Badlands Yeah. before it became Foley House, you know, and... I was in a at the bottom of end of my drug. Well, no, I wasn't. I was in the early stages because I parted from Sydney not long after that. Because in amongst that whole period, my boyfriend at the time, who taught me how to be a puffer to start off with, you know, overdosed. And died, you know. So, oh my God, yeah. So my whole world, just I left Sydney. Basically, I found him. You know, after decided, like I'm burning you. You know, you're getting cremated, and everything about what I was in Sydney for had all of a sudden disappeared. And I left Sydney, and but and up until then. We started doing speed and we started snorting it at, at first and then we started drink, putting it in drinks. And then at once he said to me, if, you, if you're going to have, if, I, if I'm going to shout you, you're going to have to shoot this, you know. And so that's how I got onto the needle. Do you remember that as a, um, as a big change? Because I was, I was actually telling George before that at various points of my life I've used heroin over a year or, but I never, I never injected it because yeah. I told myself if I didn't inject it, I didn't have a, an addiction. Yeah. Uh, I got really close. Hmm. Was that, was that a, was that just a, like a moment for you that just happened really naturally or? I think I was a real, look, I was in love with this arsehole, you know, and I mean, he was a good little Catholic boy, was a little curry boy and, you know, we were just the odd couple that somehow worked and I got something from him and he got something from me. Yeah. And I never really questioned it, but I never saw myself as a a junkie or someone with a drug problem. Yeah, because you kind of go, what is it? I was just talking about that language before, like what is a, a, a junkie? Like it's kind of, it's a word. It's a person who doesn't actually look, like they fit into society. Yeah. It's a person who looks unemployed. It's a person who really looks like they've got no values or principle. Well, that wasn't me. 
Yeah. You know, it's like I had a job, I went to work, I paid my taxes, you know, and I went to nice clubs and I fucked the right people. <laughs> <laughs> And, and and that was my def. I, I was in the, the in crowd, you know, and the people that were sort of nodding off on the street or something else, you know, they were in a different group. So you're saying within this, the hierarchy of kind of um, injecting drug users, you you were in there, but there was a whole hierarchy. There was a whole. So hierarchy. what what? How did you describe it yourself? If you weren't a junkie, how might have you described yourself then and how did that hierarchy work? You know? I was a party animal, yep. if anything, and I just had good taste, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I went to the, the, the best clubs and I did the, the right drugs and I just, you know, heroin, a lot of, it was a funny, from the speed group, a lot of people transition from speed to heroin. I, my partner, wanted to go to heroin, and I, there was a whole group of people, friends of ours, that were becoming heroin addicts. And I just sort of said, "Look, there's nothing cool about turning blue in somebody's bathtub. I'm really sorry. It's not my thing. It doesn't. It's not." I was into looking cool, looking good. You, you know, I, I wanted to come fuck me look. You know, I just, and I just thought heroin addicts don't look like they they might be having a fantastic time in their head, but in the visual appearance, you know, I wouldn't, I didn't want to do that. And my partner took a shot that killed him. You know, and I found him. So not only did, you know, this injecting drug using, mm. then all of a sudden I really didn't want to be in, the, in that team, you know, and I just wanted to leave it behind. Was, was that when you first tried? Because I imagine that was a massive trauma for you, that your partner, the man you love, you know, it becomes instantly really serious. Yeah. Did, did you try and get clean then at that point or was that when you just shot out of Sydney? I shot out of Sydney. Well, I thought I was getting clean, but I traded one drug for another one. I gave up um, speed and I didn't give up ecstasy. I didn't give up acid. I didn't give up mushroom. <laughs> but I, I, I moved basically back up to Nimbin. And I became a, a, a yandy addict, you know, and I just smoked. But I actually thought I'd given up, you know, because I'd given up the needle. I thought I thought I was clean, and and I thought I was actually on the straight and narrow. And then I increased my drinking, and I just then was smoking like twenty joints a day. And, you know, consuming at least a six-pack and, and bo- cans of bourbon in the afternoon to wash the day down. And then I had the heart attack. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there you go. The body went, yeah. Luke, it's enough. Hmm. Did had, had you, in that sense, was it, you know, you had had you been lit, like sort of you know, look at, at take any notice of your health as you went along? Did you take good care of yourself? With, like at other times you were obviously... Drinking and, and smoking a bit. I'm gay. I'm a Taurus. I'm vain. 
<laughs> exactly. Yeah. I want to look good no matter if I'm in shit straight. Because yeah. that's a stereotype, I think, too, is that people that use drugs don't have self-care yeah. and that's completely wrong. Totally. I'm also a fitness freak. I, you know, look, everything for me is about my body. Yeah. You know, and if it looks good, you're in. And I know, because I offered you a biscuit yeah. and you wouldn't have eaten it. And I, <laughs> I mean, that man looks after himself. Yeah. It was a mid slice too. And they're irresistible. So that's it's a, a good biscuit. It's a very good biscuit. Look, as much as I hate chocolate, under down, I, I think everybody loves chocolate. I don't, yep. and ice cream. They're the two things I really have to really say no to. Yeah. I know, me too. Um, it is. I was just going to ask you, so because um, I used to be a nurse, right, so I used to work in, in health um, right at the interface on the wards but mm. also in emergency and, and also a few different clinics around the place. And I always found it really interesting that the way the, the health system kind of uh, and the people within it would, re, would respond to as soon as someone was disclosed as an IV drug user, it kind of changed. Yeah. You could feel the, the tone change with people. What was it like for you to interface I mean, you're from health, you're saying, but mm. for, for you to come back and actually come in from the other side and actually interface with health, um, knowing that they know you're an IV drug user, mm. what was your experience? My experience was I made it really quite clear to people that I take responsibility for myself. I pay my own way. What I've done to my body is being stupid, but I've never had any really good role models to actually guide me through life. Being an Aboriginal gay man, say, stuff it, what you think about me, but I look good. You know, and if I wound up in the morgue, I look good, okay? <laughs> and, so, and I really sort of got offended by, you know, you've got all this information about what I'm, and I've got none, Yet you're not going to share it with me either. You're going to look down your nose at me when you're shorter than me. And I, so, so, so no. you experience that. Is that something that you oh, ever, all the time? Yeah. Tragically. Yeah. There any specific experiences that you had, Luke, with the health with the health system of of how when you were judged or treated? Because as you said, you you had the trifecta. Then you're yeah. you know you're indigenous, you're gay, and you were injecting drug use. I like. I had three surgeons or doctors having a. A, conversa- a really negative conversation about me and, you know, the state I'd got myself in and and I just went, hey, excuse me, I do have ears, I can hear what you're saying, you know, and, it, and I was just sort of like looked at like I wasn't even in the room and then, you know, and if this has got to do about me, can you at least explain it mm. to me? So what does that feel like? you know, as a person. How did you feel when that was happening to you? For I mean, me, I felt like I was this little black boy who was in the way of every white person I grew up with. And I really, and again, I'm on the wrong planet, you know, and I just thought I I grew up in a different time that everybody grew up. Like being Aboriginal now is, every, is congratulated and, and really looked upon as really good. Well, where I grew up, you know, people turned hoses on you if you walked on the front of their street. Like you were screamed Sambo and nigger to your face. It was like the I used to look in the mirror as a child and mum would say to me, what are you looking at? And I used to say to mum, what do they call the really black people? 
Yeah, because it was just like, and this was an onslaught, insult every day, and that's what these doctors made me feel like, mm. you know. And I just thought, yeah, I might have had a fucking heart attack, you bastards, but I bet you I can knock your bloody teeth out. And it was like, you know, stop talking to people. Your bedside manner sucks, you know. And do you think that was the... IV drug part of your trifecta they were talking to, or do you think the the indigenous got mixed up in that as well? The indigenous always get mixed up in that as well, you know. And and then you know the sexuality goes yeah. flows in on top of that. And I've always, as a I've. I have real abandonment issues. I've got real separate rejection issues. I've never felt good enough. But when I'm verbally hearing somebody who is actually talking down to me but without talking to me, it's like they're fighting words. And it's like I've never been one. Yeah. A friend used to say to me, God, you always speak your mind, you know. I don't mince words, you know. Did that, did that ever come back at you, speaking your mind? Like, I mean, did you ever kind of have people telling you, beat you up or, or you no, know? No, I, I was one of these doctors really sort of got offended by the way I was speaking and walked through and I just sort of said to him, yeah, the truth hurts, doesn't it? You, you know, it's like you might be intellectual and conservative and middle class, but you're a fucking asshole. Right? Yeah, it's great that you had that confidence <clears throat> to actually, because I imagine a lot of people would just take that and then never go back to the doctors again. Did you? Oh, did that make you feel like not going back, or did you just go? I'm going to. Oh look, I went back. I was going to do something about this, but I just thought if I drop dead right now, I'm glad I got this off my chest. <laughs> and you and me both know exactly where we stand. And yes, I am the patient. And yes, I have had a whole. But you don't know my story. You don't know who you're talking to. I could have been a person who attacked people or took it out on hurting other people the way I felt really hurt. Yeah. But no, this is my journey. I'm going to take a little bit of, I'm going to try and get through it, you know. And, you know, drugs were my medication and I now realise that I go to NA and I realise that's what I've been trying to do is to try and to resolve my anxiety, everything through using drugs. And unfortunately they wear off and you have to keep topping them up. Which I imagine, yeah, it can be a really hard lifestyle. There's also the um, the role of shame, isn't it? Shame and trauma. Oh, look, shame's a big one. Yeah. Especially in the Indigenous yeah. community. Like it, it, it's a major one that everybody plays on, you know? Yeah. And it is. It can be so disempowering for, you know, is that changing now, do you think? You know, is is that is that shame being pushed back a bit? Because it Look, I'm fifty-two years old, my mother's homophobic, so is my brother and most of my uncles and aunties are and we've got a gay auntie that you can't even say the word. You know, and it's like I've never been anything but attracted to men and yet you know, it's like there's something totally wrong with me. But meanwhile, I've got a, a niece who's gay and she's openly gay and it's accepted. But for me, it, it's been the nightmare that I've had. I've never been good enough for my 
family of origin and I've never been accepted. You know, no, it's, I'm very independent. I'm very successful as far as looking after myself, paying my own way, taking responsibility for everything I do. But my sexuality puts me right in, you know, a woman basher, a person going in and out of jail, a murderer is a much better person than me. You know, these mums said to someone, oh, there's something wrong with me. And I heard her, I said, yeah, you know what's wrong with me? I'm your fucking son. You know? Yeah, that stuff hurts, doesn't yeah. it? I mean, that stuff really does hurt because you're going, you are, you're a good man, hmm. you know, and, and that sort of, that sense of, is, is that something that can you reconcile that now as part of moving forward with your own life so it doesn't hold you back so you can make choices that you want to make? Look, I've just got to accept me for who I am and if other people around me don't, well, tough because you're missing out on knowing a person. My mother is actually in the final stages of her life and I've sort of let everything go, watching and she's got... She's got cancer of the liver and she's got heart issues. But mum's actually talks to me a lot, lot nicer now, like I'm actually a human being and and she says, I love you, and she actually really means it. And it's just like, wow, what's going on here? And then I'm realising you're coming to terms with your own mortality and maybe this is the stuff you want to leave behind. Well, leave it behind. But... Mm. And then I've got a brother who's also in there too and he has a real issue with my sexuality and I just said to him, it's got nothing to do with you, you know, and you seem to think that by me sleeping with a male or a female makes me acceptable to you. Well, that's a really shallow person, right? Yeah, at fifty-two, that's a long time to be to be openly out and to still, still yes. be. Still having to be coming out yes. in, in your family. Um, I was wondering, because you've spoke a lot about all the kind of negative interfaces and a lot of people, um, and even in your family, the lack of acceptance and mm. the rejection you're talking about. So where where in your life have you found, whether it's um, individuals or whether it's, a, let's just say, somewhere in, somewhere in health that takes you, that accepts you, where you've had really positive moments that have kind of helped you kind of live the life that you're leading now, you know? Look, where, 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 where's the positive in your life and how has that made a difference for you? I think being an artist and, you know, but I'm an artist because it actually takes me to a place. That's, I call it the dreaming, but a lot of people call it, but it takes me somewhere that's absolutely beautiful and, and I connect with people in a different way. I think art has opened doorways for friendship with me and really strong, powerful friendships that have lasted a lifetime. And even when people have died, I still feel their presence with me. And then there's the gay community that, have, and a bit radical in places, you know, some people don't like breeders and some people don't like lesbians. But, you know, they all, at the end of the day, all bound together for the one united cause, which is we're attracted to the same sex and we accept it. And I've got a, I've got, 
I've got more of a gay family than a than a indigenous family, and that's saying a lot because I know a lot of indigenous people. But I'm judged by I was judged really badly in the indigenous community for being an injecting drug user. It was like you know petrol sniffers had a better chance at life than what we did, you know. And why was that? Do you think, Luke? Why? why you know, was that in your small community, that from where you came from, from home? I think it stems, people used to make out that Indigenous people didn't do drugs and I just thought, you want to get out more? You know, yeah. you've really got to, I, just, I would look at them like that come from Mars. It's like, where have you been? <laughs> but um, especially needles, you know, there was a, Real big thing that Aboriginal people don't like, Liz, and I just thought, not from where I come from, you know, they're pin cushions, right? And communities around here have now got injecting drug users that are, you know, and people are wishing them dead as as a solution to dealing with what's going on for them. Or they're wanting to actually attack the dealer, whoever that person is, you know, but the problem still, you're not, you're scooting around it all. You know, the person that you really need to address is the person who's actually putting a needle in their arm in the first place. That's where the problem stops and starts, you know. I'm curious as to, because you talked about sort of in a way, um, these are my words, but art sort of saved you. Yeah. If I can change those that the way I said that, what's what's the changeover from from the IV drug use coming across to art? I mean, how much can you attribute becoming an artist? Because because as you were saying, you were working in a uh, in needle exchange, and then just near the end there, you said, "Oh, actually, by the way, I'm an artist." And I'm no. just wondering, what's that changeover from from drug use to art, and how how did those two cross over, and how did one help you get out of that? Well, I. Call them visions. I see things that, and I don't know whether a lot of people would think it's drug and juice, but you know, I found a sketchbook in in a skip in in King's Cross once, and when I got it home, I just looked at the page, and this image came to me, and it was it was a, it was an indigenous design, and I just had crayons and I just was trying to catch up with what I'd see. And then I looked at another page a couple of days later and this landscape came out at me and I was just catching up with it. That's how I've got into 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 painting and drawing is because images would come to me. And I've been painting for over, I've been painting for about 40 years now and it's something that takes me somewhere. It talks to me, but it, it doesn't talk to me in a 20th century format. There's no man-made object, and I see things that are just really, I can only say is a dream time. And I think there's something wrong with me, but it's a nice wrong with me, you know. I've stopped sort of feeling like, okay, you got to go get help for this because it. I'm, and I draw things 
that elders really understand. And it's like, do you know what you're drawing? And someone says, who told you that story? It's like so I did a, a painting of five trees that come together and wind together and, and a light in the back that's like crossing over to the other side. And an elder sort of said, that's a Kempsey story, you know. It's about the five clans that make up the Nungari tribe. And, you know, and that's a spiral they're going to, to, to the other dimension. And he said to me again, now, who told you that? I said, you did, Uncle. <laughs> Are you uh, taking anything now? Do you still use or no, not at all? I'm clean and sober. Clean and, and sober, yeah. 13 years. 13 years? Yeah. Wow. Wow. It was, a, has it been hard at times? Difficult, tragic, horrible. Mm. <laughs> 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 like anxiety, yeah. you know, and people used to say to me, oh, you're in early recovery, and I just used to say, well, when does it stop? And it's like early early recovery is five years, and then I realise that I just have anxiety, full stop, and it's it's why I started using in the first place. It's why why I took drugs in the first place. And doctors and that used to say, oh, will put you on antidepressants. And I sort of say, listen, if you want, if you're such a fan of antidepressants, you take it yourself. There was no way. That's when I found the gym. And working out for me gave my endorphins or whatever you want to call them, those feel-good cells, really worked. And every time I'd go come out of the gym, I'd sort of stuff out that was running around inside my brain. Mm. But even today, I have anxiety. I wake up and, and everything I'm supposed to do for the day just flies straight at, at me. And then someone said to me, that's normal. And I just thought, you know, and you wonder why half the society drinks and takes and has some sort of a, a medication to actually shut, switch the head off, you know. Well, that's a big part, isn't it? I mean, people trying to separate what what makes us do what we do. Like you sort of, you, you moved on to, to speed and that mm. sense, everything that you were looking for with that. And then you, I love how you've gone through all that. At the end of the day, the thing that got you there in the first place is still there. The anxiety yeah. is still there, um, which yeah, a lot of society has, if yeah. not probably most of us I in some I form. don't think most of society though, George, could do 13 years clean and sober. No, 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 absolutely not. You know, most I of society will be taking it. a drink, they'll be doing something, they'll be doing something to try and medicate that. So it's, Look, it's amazing. that to, to And I've seen people in the rooms who boomerang, and go, but I don't have that luxury. If I take something now, it's going to kill me. I had this really unbelievable out-of-body experience when I had my heart attack where a voice came to me and it said, Luke, it's not your time, you have things to do. And I'm really frightened that if I dare muck around with this voice, they're going to say, listen, who you're dealing with, and just pull the plug. <laughs> well, your time's now. Yeah. You're just, you're and you're going, up. You don't want to not listen to that voice when it comes through. Were you anxious coming here today? What's that? Were you, were you anxious about coming here today or was that okay? No, that's okay. I, I just thought I get to tell my story again so that I hear it, you know. Yeah. And, you know, like I didn't know what you were going to ask him, but if it was about my sort of journey, I sort of know it really yeah. well. 
Yeah, You're no. the only one who really knows it. So, yeah. so that's the thing. I mean, so 13 years, what, what might you say to someone who's kind of, you know, trying to boomerang him, not coming back? It's just. Yeah, what advice what, do you what have What advice do you have someone who's, who's. Who wants but, to be where you are. Yeah, wants to be where you are. Who Look, wants to clock up 13 years. Yeah. One, I've got my life. I'm living, you know, and if I'm. And you get to be able to live a life and wake up. But I own everything in my house now. I own my car. You know, I'm working. I'm doing, I'm really independent. I've taken responsibility for myself and everything I do. If you want to live, I had the two choices. It was live or die. And if I wanted to live, I had to give up the things that were killing me. And, you know, you're a fool to actually think that smoking's good for you, smoking marijuana's good for you, drinking alcohol's good for you, you know, taking ecstasy's good for you, taking acid's good for you. You know, these are all the things I used to do. You know, and people sort of say back, every drug, the only drug I never took was heroin. Because that wasn't the cool drug. MDA was cool. Coke was cool. You know, mix them all together. Yes, cocktail, you know. And then alcohol. One of my favourite drinks was champagne and brandy. I didn't realise that if it was a rocket fuel that people, you know. I, I love how your, um, this is what I love, Lucas, I love how your coolness <laughs> kept you alive. It's like it's one of those things where, you know, being cool, it's actually sometimes can actually be good for you. Yeah, as long as you look good while you're doing it. you look good. Yeah, it's kind of that bit of vanity where you go, I'm not going to go there because mm. it won't make me look good. It's, it's actually kept you away from that, that next yeah. stage. Yes, and drug use is quite tribalised in that people who use a particular drug tend to socialise with, or isn't it, within that, that drug use, like the MDMA, MDMA yes. crew, or hang with the MDMA crew, the yes. people that use heroin will tend to, you know. Yeah, subcultures within yeah. the culture. And then there's the beer crew. Yeah. You know, that's called Australians. That's called Australians. <laughs> but not all Australians. There's the, those who are going, oh, I don't do that. I'm a craft beer person. Yes, <laughs> yes. I do craft or I do wine. There's, yes. whole, there's even within that world. There's, so yeah. what about your friends um, when, you, when you got clean? Luke, did your friends accept that fairly readily? Because no, that no. can be sometimes really disruptive. I had a lot of people who just, like, I had to leave Nimbin in the end because people, I'd be sitting opposite the pub on the other side of the street and people would walk across with a scooter and just and put it in front of me, you know. <laughs> and, you know, and because I wasn't smoking, you know, people would drop dope in front of me. Like, I had someone give me an ounce you know, and people never gave me anything in the day, you know, and then at tropical fruit parties and stuff like that, you know, people were giving me ecstasy and the drugs I loved, and it was like I don't do drugs anymore, you know, and, and I'd give it to some spunky little boy next door, happy new year, darling, enjoy your time, <laughs> you know, and, but... My friends were like, I had a friend who just could not believe that me was not drinking, smoking, because I taught him how to do all the things, you know. And even to this day, he's still smoking pot, and, but not as, in, as intensely as I was. And, but we're friends. 
and we, I had to stay away from him for about 10 years. And there are some people that never recovered from it and, that, and one by one people have died that were in the drug circle that I hang around. And I've got some really dear old friends and one of them's a Buddhist and, and totally understand what I'm doing, you know. But, yeah, I've changed a whole crew of people as well. And then it's really sad to say, but at one stage I just had nobody. I said, where is everybody going? And, you know, I was left with people in NA. He wants to know. And I've got friends in that go to 12 Steps AA and NA and go, I don't want to I don't want these people to be my like, like some, my, all my new friends. Yeah, like some of them I just have nothing in common with them except we've had a hard journey and we need to stop. You know, and there was one guy in NA who, a couple actually, and they wound up committing suicide <laughs> because not only could they not cope with being stopped, out of it all the time. They couldn't cope with being straight either. They, I just felt so sorry for these people. Like, you can't function in either of them. And that was a real reality check for me. It's like, you know, choose your battles but know what you're doing as well, you know. And then this anxiety just was not. And even today it still is with me but it's like deal with it. You know, do something that's going to alleviate it, erase it. Painting takes it away from me. That's one of the best. Going to the gym, sex. Yeah. And s- That'd be a good day, Luke. Uh, sex, the gym and whack out of painting. Yeah. And, you know, once you start giving everything up, there's only really two things left, food and sex. And so I've swayed more to the sex side. And you, you, <laughs> you, I've got a partner or... I don't know if we were a partner or not, but he's in Brisbane and he sort of said, what do you want? I said, I only want sex. That's all I want. You, you know, I don't want a long-term relationship. I just, I don't want to be a lovey-dovey couple. I just want hot sex. And if you can't do that, then I'll find somebody who can. He said, just it's up wrong for you. <laughs> I said, but we've been sort of to go on and off for four or five years now. Obviously the hot sex is good. (laughs) (laughs) But it actually just makes me feel like I'm in my body, you Mm. know, and it's just like, and that's everything for me is circled around the body, you know. In a sense too, the distance, because Brisbane's not, it's not in your same town, Mm. so it means you kind of have to wait. There's that sense of waiting and organising and and. And then hooking up and all that stuff, yes. which actually builds that sort of tension. Yes. I used to have a lover in Sydney, but he's too far away. It's too far away. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> too far. If you have one here, too close. Too close. Brisbane, just right. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for chatting with us today, Luke. It's been a real pleasure to, to hear your story. Oh, thank um, you. Thank you. Yes. Um, great. And all the best with um, sex and art. Yes, thank you. <laughs> We wanted to find out if there were any specific cultural considerations, so we spoke to Kerry Ann Smith. She's the Aboriginal Hep C Promotion Officer. She's part of the Deadly Liver Mob Project and the NSP at Mount Druitt in Sydney. I feel that it's more stigmatised within the Aboriginal community and that comes out of racism as well. 
a client once told me that um, she deserved the treatment she got because she's an Aboriginal injecting drug user and that took a lot of time to try to convince her that she was not, she did not deserve the type of treatment that she got. Um, I tell all of my Aboriginal clients that if they have any any hard time within any health service, come to me and I will put a formal complaint in on their behalf. And this has happened a few times. So um, it's knowing that they've got some someone to go to that understands and to to advocate and back them up and and to help them understand they do not deserve this treatment. In the beginning of the project, I got that underlying current, you know, um, one woman nearly died because she didn't want to go to the hospital with a with an abscess on her tooth because of the way she was treated in a prior admission because she was an Aboriginal and an injecting drug user. So that could have impacted seriously on her health if she didn't trust the service, our service enough to come and speak to me. No one, like no one, I've actually had a lot to do with and and advocate for has has said um, that they're discriminated against by their own mob. In fact, five elders out here set up a, it was when the ice age happened, they set up an ice rally. So they're all grandparents and um, a lot of their, um, their grandchildren use our service but they saw the damage that ICE was doing, so they called an ICE rally. So it's, they're not shutting people out. They're looking for ways to deal with it and answers on how to deal with it and services that help deal with drug addiction. So they're very proactive instead of shunning or, or shutting out their family members. Um. Well, I'm the only Aboriginal worker on my team, which is the whole drug health team. Um, what I believe is, especially in Nettleton and syringe programs and methadone programs, there should be a designated Aboriginal worker that Aboriginal people can access um, access in those services. Uh, there's, there's, there's not enough of us on the ground on the front line of... Like, there's no Aboriginal nurse or counsellor in drug health services. Like I'm it, basically, and I'm not a counsellor. Um, so I think I think staffing levels need to be looked at, and Aboriginal people accessing those services should be should have access to an Aboriginal worker. It just works more smoothly. We've seen it happen here. I mean, at the beginning of the project, it started off as a health promotion project and it just went gangbusters till the Ministry for Health and the Centre for Social Research um, funded it and took it on board to, and it was a statewide rollout. And in those in those services that run the Delhi Liver Mob project, there's, everyone's had success. Oh, success is the wrong word. Everyone has had brilliant engagement with the Aboriginal community and therefore, um, you know, professional relationships are formed with the clients and every every site reports back that 
the engagement, um, the word of mouth gets out, the Curry Bush Telegraph, we call it, word of mouth gets out, and they see people that they haven't seen before. And, and that happened here too. So I feel that, that yeah, in, in any of these drug health services that like needle and syringe, drug and alcohol counselling and methadone should have a full-time designated worker, Aboriginal worker, I mean, yeah. I work from Mount Druitt. Mount Druitt has the highest urban Aboriginal population in Australia, I think, but don't quote me on that. I think it could be New South Wales. So we base my position and the project here in Mount Druitt, but then our clients who reside here would go back back to country. You know, I've seen people from Moree, Galarganbone. I've seen people from Queensland who are relatives who the, the, of the clients that I've seen, and they're like, while well, they come to visit this town to their relatives, their relatives bring them in to the project. And so the word that I think that's why the ministry um, funded it for a statewide rollout because they could see that. Um, just the position of Mount Druitt was no barrier to anyone, like family and and um, like one guy came in and said, "Oh, I heard about it at a funeral at Moree. I've come to visit visit family, and they told me to come and talk to you about Hep C." Today we were hearing Luke's story. Next week we speak with Manny and Hayden, a couple who are navigating the complex space of having one person stop injecting and the other continuing. Needle and Syringe Programs, NSPs, are an evidence-based public health program funded to reduce the individual and community harms associated with injecting drug use. Over the last 30 years, NSPs have proven to be very successful in preventing the spread of HIV and viral hepatitis in Australia and globally. To find out more about harm reduction and the strong body of evidence that supports these policies, programs and practices, you can visit the website harmreductionaustralia.org.au. To find out more about childhood trauma and its impacts on individuals and the community, you can visit the Blue Knot Foundation website www.bluenot.org.au.